Hello, everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Gene Linetsky, a true techie and serial entrepreneur with several exits. He's currently CTO at True Accord, where he helps transform debt collection by leveraging machine learning, behavioral analytics, and an omni-channel digital approach to collections. Today, we're discussing with Gene how technology-based competitive advantages can be compounded over time to create an enduring moat. But before we get into that, Gene, welcome to the show. Thank you, Oleg. Thank you, Angel News. <laughs> yeah, you got it, Angel News. Yeah, well, it's exciting to have you. Uh, excited to kind of ask you a couple questions about moats. But before we get into that, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself to get us started? Um, I've been the CTO of Trocord for the last 10 months, and um, it's probably the biggest, the longest honeymoon in my career. Previously, I've built, I've been building startups, um, managing engineering teams of various size. And in the last millennium, I was a straightforward software engineer. Wow. So 10 months is your longest honeymoon period. So can you tell us more about that? Well, it's pure luck that I found this company. In fact, the company found me, the, fun, the company's founder, Ohad Samet, and I were, were connected on Facebook for many years. We've never actually met. And then he somehow found out that I left my previous company, pinged me on F Facebook. We met in Palo Alto, started talking. And I realized that I've never even seen anything about this company before. In the course of a half an hour conversation, it became obvious that this is probably going to be the dream job of my career. And uh, a few months later, it, it's proven to be the case. So can you just tell us a little bit more about like True Accord, just sort of set up the, you know, where you're working, and then that'll help uh, help inform the conversation just a little bit, and then we'll move on to most. Well, absolutely. Well, let me start with uh, deep history. Maybe some of the listeners know the origin of this phrase, being in a hole, meaning being in a financial hole. Turns out many years in many years ago in England, that was the method people used to deal with people who don't pay their debts. They would dig a hole in the ground, put the person in it, and the person stays in there until their friends or family buy them out or don't. And so, so the reputation of the collections industry, understandably, is very, very poor, to, to put it um, charitably. This company is the no, is the only company, even now, even today, that is approaching the industry in a completely different way. We're putting the consumers in the driver's seat. We treat them with respect, with flexibility, and um, that's why, in a few years, we've become the number uh, the, the the top one percent in all collection agencies in in the U.S. And it's the only collections agency in the history of the world with four point eight stars of Google reviews. Interesting. Awesome. So today we're going to be talking about moats. There's a little history on digging holes, but let's let's move on. So we're here today to talk about five compounding technology moats. But before we get to the kind of specifics about what moats specifically we're talking about, let's just to define what a moat is. I believe the term was coined by Warren Buffett. How do you interpret the context of value creation can you, can you just give me uh, your definition of what a moat is? What was Warren Buffett talking about? Well, I don't, I didn't read anything from Mr. Buffett on the subject, but by the definition of the word, it's something that protects the business above and beyond its value. 
right? Because um, you can totally make a case of, of a business or entity existing without any protection from the outside. It may or may not, may not survive, but I would say the moat is in a modern Silicon Valley language is a secret sauce or, or a defensible competitive advantage. And is this something you run into a lot? Like are people in the Bay Area talking about moats a lot? Have you experienced that? Not really. Um, the word moat is not used very frequently for some reason, but people constantly talk about unfair advantages, uh, being baby monopolies, trying to not compete with other businesses and trying to protect the entity in any way possible. Too. So of course, if you are in charge of a, of a company or, or some other entity, or you work for it, you want that entity to survive for as long as possible. And um, sometimes the best way to do it is to provide value, just straightforward, honestly, to deal with the outside world. And sometimes you will find some unfair advantages. And in those cases, at any given phase of the company's development, that's definitely an advantage over, over everybody else who's trying to do the same thing. So that's kind of a moat in the context of like technology companies and creating value. Let's talk about this framework. And the first moat we want to talk about today is innovation. So how can a business use innovation to get a head start on other startups and start their way to building an enduring moat? Well, innovation is something that is supposed to produce something new and shiny. And there is always a category of users, consumers, stakeholders who will be attracted to this newness and shininess. But of course, it's not a real mode because anybody else can do new and shiny as well. In fact, before we go into those five categories of modes, maybe we should step back a little bit and talk about the, the concept of compounding itself. And I have to admit that this idea of companies building enduring competitive advantage or modes using compounding interest occurred to me very recently in, 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 a, like in passing in a conversation about something else. And uh, it may be that we are going to be developing this idea right now on this podcast. Okay. So can you tell me more? Right. So let's, let's like look at the idea of compounding. What is compounding, really? Compounding is when your capital is working for you. It's not where you're working for other people and get money in return, to put it simply, right? Compounding is something that you've accumulated over time, and now that thing, that entity, is working for you. In financial terms, let's say you invested $100.00. Then the company you invested in grew, the $100 became, the, 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 whatever you own, the portion of the company you own became more valuable. You can sell it for more, more than $100 or you can borrow against the $100, invest that money in something else and that continues growing while you're doing nothing. But why is it growing? Why is it really growing? What makes it grow? By investing that money, you're essentially asking anonymous other people to work for you, right? And that's the nature of compounding. The compounding is not the anonymous amount of money mi like mysteriously growing over time. Nothing is growing over, over time unless somebody is working on it. And uh, by compounding interest, you're re really actually employing all the other investors and all the other participants in all the companies and entities you've invested in. So if we translate this now into the realm of technology or startups or new companies, then you have to find some analogy of that capital that's that's not necessarily financial in nature. Of course, you can create a massive moat around yourself by sitting on a trillion dollars in cash, for example, 
and um, that's it, at least appears to be uh, part of Apple's strategy, for example. But not every company is in that position. Yeah. So are moats kind of a way for you know because tech companies they can't invest a hundred dollars. Are they a way to get this compounding effect? Well, the the moat is the side effect of starting to accumulate capital, and so now let's look at what forms that particular capital can can take inside an entity so yeah let's do it so now we're so now let's get to it so i, I think the first moat we we wanted to talk about is the innovation mode so let's put that in the context of technology companies right so so let's uh, in turn let's look at those five categories that you've um, listed before or maybe mentioned before and see if we can identify the thing that that particular approach to moting <laughs> to coin a new term, is indeed creating some some analogy of financial capital inside the company. Yeah. So, so let me really explicitly, I'll, I'll really explicitly ask the question, how do technology companies use innovation to build a moat or how do they achieve moat? Right. So how do technologies, how do technology companies use innovation to achieve moating by virtue of creating some analogy of financial capital inside themselves? Because again, the idea of compounding is that you have something that causes other people, other companies, other entities to work for you while you sleep, right? And from that point of view, innovation doesn't pass the test. Innovation does not create any sustainable advantage that will in turn make other people's or entities work for you. Well, maybe in, in limited cases in, in small, so, so let's, let's think about an example. Let's say I'm Apple and I created uh, a new product that I didn't know if people are going to want or not, iPhone. Can we find something in that example that points to other people's or entities, uh, or other people or entities working for Apple by virtue of it, uh, creating this, this thing? So in the first couple of years of, of uh, iPhone's existence, it was just pure innovation. And people bought it because it looked different. It was... It was the first full-screen web browser that looked almost identical to desktop browsers, and it felt like a something new. But then again, there, there are many other attempts in the history of Apple itself and other companies to do the same thing, and it, they failed. All of them failed. We can start with Lisa, one of their computers, many years ago, and, and then Newton also failed. So that example tells us that the innovation itself, the newness and the something new and exciting in and of itself is not enough. And I suspect that Apple in the first year of iPhone's existence realized that innovation alone, the newness and, and interestingness alone is not going to sustain this new business that they created. And then somebody finally convinced Steve Jobs that the company should not control all the apps on this device. And that's where we're going into the network effects. But uh, maybe I'm skipping ahead. Yeah, we got a couple of modes to get through. Uh, I think the key takeaway there is like innovation can give you temporary moat. Innovation can give you protection because, you know, you have something that nobody else has, but it's only for a time, right? So your competitors are always going to catch up. They're going to watch what you're doing and, and they're going to be able to catch up to, to, to what you've built. So that, that innovation moat is only going to last maybe six months, if that. Absolutely. But, but by the way, it never stopped any consumer companies from slapping a new label on an old product, putting on supermarket shelves and, and seeing sales go up. Right. 
I, when you were talking about Apple, I'm thinking, yeah, as soon as uh, as soon as they re- released Apple iPhone one, um, how quickly were they like, yeah, this innovation is not going to last. We better start working on iPhone two. I, I think I remember those being pretty closely followed uh, one one after the other. Yeah, so innovation is only going to last so long. So that moat you can build, but you know it's it's not going to last forever. So the next moat we want to talk about is lock-in. So once a startup has gotten this head start, what is lock-in and how can they exploit it to retain users and customers? Let's continue using the same example. Let's say I bought the first iPhone and then Google comes up with a newer, more interesting iPhone. The theory of innovation being a reasonable mode will tell us that I'm not going to switch to to Google because I'm so enamored with this new shiny device. But unfortunately, by now, it's not so new, it's not so shiny. And feature by feature, Google is beating it. How how do I, as, as a company, as Apple in this particular case, protect my consumer base? Well, by lock in, right? And lock in played out right away when, when the second version of iPhone was released. And it became very obvious to people that transitioning from the old device to a new device so frequently as uh, people started changing devices when um, smartphones came came about, it's going to be a very big burden. And I suspect that Apple deliberately taught the first generation of iPhone users that transitioning from one small device to another small device will be much, much harder if the second small device of a different type. That's a typical case of technological lock-in. Right. And I think this example is actually a a little bit perplexing because when we talk about lock-in, what we mean is the the company that has the innovation, they want to lock in their customers by whatever means necessary. But with this this iPhone example, they're actually achieving lock-in by asking customers to to get locked into Apple, not necessarily like the iPhone. They, when, when Apple talks about lock-in, it's lock-in to iOS, it's lock-in to Apple iPhone. So the question I have here is like, what's the minimum threshold that a startup needs to ensure lock-in? So I, I guess, yeah, do you have any thoughts there? Like, what, how do you achieve lock-in? What are we going for when we talk about lock-in? It's always follow the money. If you make even slightly more expensive for your customers to use even a superior product than yours, then you might achieve lock-in as long as the money that they'd be saving by not switching would not have been invested in a much better product in their mind. And if, if my product is okay and your product is wonderful, but it costs my customers even a small investment, to switch to a superior product, most of them will not, unless there is something so different and so new and so superior about your product that it becomes difficult for them to justify the decision internally. But usually the inertia is your friend in terms of lock-in. Do you have any examples of companies that do this really well of kind of not giving their customers an option to to opt, opt out? Well, I would say transitioning from GitHub to GitLab is not very easy, for example. Even though GitLab is feature by feature, I would say the superior product. It sounds like uh, you've learned that one from experience, maybe. A couple of times. And so why is this lock-in moat more sustainable than just the unique innovation moat? It's more sustainable because now it's not the function of other people doing better products. So against innovation, you, you you can fight innovation with innovation, but you cannot fight lock-in with lock-in. You have to convince the, the consumer to switch first. And the switching costs, if, even if the switching costs don't exceed the lost value 
that you would have realized with the superior product, still inertia contributes the, the portion of the of the lock-in. So you don't even have to you don't even have to convince your existing users that it's not worth for them to switch, even though the competitive product is superior, because some of the argument is in their head already. It's it's inertia. Awesome. So that's really well said. Lock-in is a, is a really powerful tool because not only the customer will typically make the decision based on money, value, if value created is greater than value lost, they're pretty much always going to make that switch. But if they're locked in, like you're saying, the power of inertia, they might stay using your product. The third moat we want to talk about today is called standard, implementing a standard. So how can a startup compound the combination of innovation and lock-in to create an even more powerful moat? A technical standard. So I guess let's start with this. What what is a technical standard? A technical standard is something like JavaScript or HTTP. It's the set of rules, procedures, and data points that everybody in the industry either has to comply to because it's by regulation or wants to comply to because it reduces the cost of doing business. How do you get there? It's one thing to say there's standards out there that, that people use, but how do you become the standard? Depends. Sometimes you can become a standard by fiat. The government can create a standard and say, everybody follow the standard or else. Uh, this is what California just did with electric cars, right? And and you can use it to your advantage if you're already far ahead on that road. So that's, that creates immediate advantage for electric car manufacturers, obviously. Uh, sometimes the standard is emerging from a completely new field. Well, let's look at JavaScript. This, this standard wouldn't have existed if somebody in the early days of Netflix, uh, Netscape didn't create a scripting language for web pages. And then it became standard just because there was no alternative. Over time, industry created the, the, the standard body around it, obviously, but um, if Netscape was still a company, it would have enjoyed writing on that standard for a long, long time before everybody else adopted it. Which actually brings us to the next one, because this is how standards die. If, if it becomes less economically advantage, if the economic advantage of using a standard becomes less important, then the standard's importance as a mode goes down. In the example with JavaScript, we could have expected that if Microsoft somehow convinced more developers in the early stages of browser development to switch to Visual Basic, which wasn't at all inconceivable, because at that time, the number of coders who knew Visual Basic was, was a million, and then the number of coders who knew JavaScript was zero, still, they couldn't pull it, off, pull it off. But if they did, then we could have very easily have two standards for browser scripting today. So the takeaway from that is like these standards kind of change over time, or they are able to change over time, just because a standard is set doesn't mean that it's set forever. Is there a way for startups to fight that risk or maintain dominance when it comes to the standard moat? What what can startups do to kind of mitigate the risk of their standard being overtaken or or yeah a competitor gaining an advantage? Well, th- there are two cases here, right? One case is when the st- the startup is sitting on the standard for for some reason it created it or it was the first one to jump on it and now it's the source of it, its its advantage. Mm-hmm. And the other case, if the standard is something that's external to the startup but it's using it to its advantage anyway. In the second case, standards just go away because the underlying technology goes away. For, long, for the longest time, we, have, we had uh, the so-called PBX standard for inter-office phone exchange. Remember those days? 
So the startup who rode on the standard were very profitable in its day. And then it turned out that the standard and the whole technology and even the, the notion of a stationary network inside the office for, for phone connections became obsolete. And so in that scenario, some startup who would, would have anticipated that move could have created a new standard, go to the holders of the existing standard and say, I know you run on PBS, PBX, here's an alternative. It's backward compatible to yours, but if you adopt mine, and I'm going to tell you this, but if you adopt mine, that then now I'm going to take over PBX and be the holder of the new standard. How would the startup who started its career on PBX defend its commanding position, its moat in this case? It wouldn't. There is no way to do it. Interesting. That was a great answer. Next, let's talk about network effects. Network effects, people talk about this a lot. think it's, you could call it kind of a buzzword. I'm not sure. People are always talking about achieving network effects, but actually doing it and how, that's, uh, there's a little, bit less, a little bit less out there in print on that. In a nutshell, what are network effects? A network effects effect is any situation where every new consumer, every new participant in a protocol or every new member of an entity disproportionately creates value for all the other members just by joining the entity or by joining whatever process that, that the startup is organizing. The typical example is a chat service. If, if I have a chat service and there is nobody else on the chat service, it's useless. The moment a couple of people are on the other side, they can talk to a few people. But every new member who's joining it creates the disproportionate value for everybody else because now everybody else can talk to five people. Everybody else can talk to 100 people, right? That's a typical example. And this is the first example where we can go back to our analogy with financial compounding and say, now we found people who are working for me while I'll sleep. And in the extreme example of Facebook, we have 2 billion people working for this entity that is now reduced to basically once in a while configuring this black box that's uh, powering the whole scheme. Let's get some more examples. So do you have an example of network effects maybe in the consumer space? And then do you have one for B2B enterprise? I haven't thought about them um, before the podcast. So maybe um, the examples I come up with right now on the spot won't be as good. But the brand loyalty, I think, is uh, one of the earliest network effects. Uh, the related phenomenon on, of word of mouth is also one of the examples because what's happening is one of your consumers for free, again, they're working for you, is telling their friend that your product is good. That's a typical network effect. And it's, it's as old as commerce. Yeah, I think really any example that comes to mind probably has a strong network effect. Like, I, you know, I think of like Coca-Cola. Every time someone buys and drinks a Coca-Cola, it's up for everyone to see. That's true too, by the way. A very similar example, thank you for providing this one, um, is the white color of Apple headphones. Because that, that signaled the, uh, the membership of an, exclu in a, an exclusive club in, in the early days. And, and so people copied each other for the benefit of Apple. Um. Interesting. How about Uber? Do you have? Uh, do you think? Do you think they're achieving network effects? And then how do you think they do it? Actually, Uber is one of the examples of zero network effect. I don't see how adding it a driver somewhere in the city today will help me get my ride faster tomorrow. And conversely, the number, the number of people who join uh, Uber as riders 
really only inadvertently. Maybe if 100 more people joined the service, then the cascading effect will be that more drivers will find it profitable to drive, and therefore my ride will be faster. But it's a very, very slow loop. Interesting. Yeah, I think uh, you could say a lot of companies achieve certain network effects. You know, as you get more users, it seems like the value would go up as a standard. Right. And, and so the, the telltale example in the Uber case is that it's hard to find who is actually working for you while you, while you sleep as, as an entity, as Uber. And riders work for you anyway. In fact, hopefully they become employees soon. <laughs> but uh, riders definitely don't work for Uber. And compared to Google, there are two categories of people working for Google every second of every day. People who maintain websites, thereby teaching Google everything it knows. And people who do searches on Google, thereby teaching Google everything that we it needs to know. Uh, how about in the in the B two B enterprise space? B two B. Let's think. So in the B two B situation, you're looking for an entity whose customers are also entities, and you want those customers to work for you while you sleep. Many of the analytics companies like Mixpanel might fit into that category by virtue of their big brain being taught by every single customer that they have. Could you fit DocuSign into that? Mm, no. I mean, again, who, who's working for DocuSign by virtue of its product existence? Is DocuSign getting better with every signature? Is DocuSign getting better with every documented process? I don't think so. So next on network effects, can, can the network effect happen on its own or do you need to stack innovation, lock-in and standard to, to get uh, any kind of meaningful value when it comes to network effects at scale? Let's see. The network effect is, again, something's working for you while you're doing nothing. Is being innovative puts you in a better position to achieve a network effect? Probably, because there is a higher probability of that something, that somebody, something that's working for you while you sleep will join the service or will buy your product. But again, just like innovation in and of itself not being a very good mode, it's not a very good contributor to the network effect. Lock-in, I don't think lock-in helps to achieve network effect either because sometimes by virtue of lock-in, you don't even need any effects. Or to put it differently, had you had a network effect plus lock-in, the network effect would probably not contribute much for keeping your customers with you. And the new customers will come anyway because they know that this is the company that's holding the standard and um, it's always better to work with a company that's holding the standard. For the longest time, companies would refuse to buy compacts. I don't know if you remember this, even though they've been proven to be completely identical to IBM native architecture. The same thing was about AMD and Intel. You can prove mathematically that those processes produce exactly the same results. In fact, AMD may be faster. But Intel convinced everyone that it's the standard. And um, and so the network effect wasn't necessary for Intel to keep its dominant position. It's still dominant. How about Amazon? They're a well-known company. How did, how did they achieve network effects? And what are some of the benefits of their network effects? Well, Amazon has several different constituencies. Let's talk about one of the merchants. So um, Amazon has millions and millions of independent merchants who use their platform and drop shipping and all of that to get the products to us. Sometimes Amazon doesn't even touch it or see the product in, in the process. Let's see, does, if I'm a merchant, will a hundred new merchants 
make my life with Amazon easier when they join or harder? It's hard to say. It's the same, it's the same consideration um, about downtowns in cities. Most businesses in cities cluster in downtowns, like consumer businesses for sure. And um, sometimes it seems counterintuitive where we're in the same street, there are three coffee shops. You would think that um, by placing the businesses so close together, they, they're increasing the churn and, and, and the competition. That tells me that um, the network effect there is, is not very pronounced in, in consumer, in retail, in Amazon. I, I don't know. It, it's always the, the first question to, to ask when you're looking for a network effect is, is everybody disproportionately better off when a new member joins the service, when a new customer buys a product? Yeah. Is it everybody or, or is it the, the service itself? No, everybody. Because I imagine if you're a merchant joining Amazon, every other merchant that joins, it kind of adds competition. It forces you to bring your prices down. I think the only winner there is Amazon, who now has more than enough people willing to, to, to be merchants. That makes sense until you realize that downtowns is the magnet for traffic. And so five merchants competing with each other on the downtown street will do more business than if they were placed in different parts of the city and not compete with itself, with each other. And so it may be that by those hundred new merchants joining Amazon, even though now I'm competing with more people, more traffic is disproportionately higher and um, therefore my revenue will be higher, even though the competition increased. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a little backwards. I, I never even kind of thought about that. Well, that's the paradox of downtowns, right? Um, identical merchants will, will set up next to each other and both will do better better than than if they didn't compete with each, with each other. Really strange situation. How about AWS? What kind of network effects can can they achieve? AWS can definitely start achieving the compounding effect, and not by network effect, but by teaching itself how to automate many of the things that it's now relying on people to do. Ooh, well, I think that's a good transition. The next moat we want to talk about is the data moat. So the network effect moat may eventually create a data moat. So is that what you were talking about? What is a data moat and how do you create one? Right, uh, well, let's look at Google because it's a classic example of a network effect creating a massive data moat, which is by now probably unsurpassable. So in the early days of Google, the intelligence with which it treated every single query was rudimentary. Really, it was just search, right? And that's because the data it's accumulated in the first years wasn't enough to teach anything more sophisticated than a bunch of rules inside inside the, 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 the machine. String matching. Right. As time went on, Google started working on something called the brain. And this is the autonomous system by now. Nobody understands how it works. Well, it's probably the most complex object in the universe outside of human brains. And then the company is just sitting around it, mostly taking free lunches and, and sometimes tweaking some of the parameters of the machine. It seems like that's the terminal state of every technology company. And in that terminal state, it becomes very similar to a human organism. Because uh, let, let's look at what, what a person is. A person is a couple of pounds of gray matter floating in complete darkness in an enclosed space and a bunch of sensors and motors controlled by it, right? This is the 
This is you and me, or this is the Google brain? Yeah, you and me, and and, and your dad and everybody else. How can you break that? Can you break that down a little more? That's really interesting. Right. So, so we have a brain that um, is getting electric signals in and sending them out by nerves. That's really all that happens in in our consciousness, at least. And if you look at Google, it's almost the same thing. Actually, any company is an entity that has four streams as associated with it. There is a stream of data coming in. There is a stream of data coming out. And by data, I, I mean data here in a very broad sense, because if you look at, let's say, a Tesla, most of the value in a physical Tesla car is data. You would agree with that. Most of the, actually, most of the cost of the modern car, and even if it's not electrical car, is software, or, or it's a know-how, know-how to how to build it, uh, the collective memory or, or DNA of the, the entire company, without which no no car will ever leave its assembly line. So all of that stuff is the data that the company is producing, and some of the data is materialized in in a physical object, but that's like a not a material fact. So 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 when when we say that Intel is a cheap company. What we really mean is Intel produces the files that will then be sent to a autom- fully automated factory in Taiwan somewhere, and they become silicon. Right. It's it's the intellectual property uh, around chips. And, and I just want to go back really quick and say that you said it kind of nonchalantly, but you're right. Like the, the value in a Tesla is not the, the car necessarily, it's the data. And that's a new thing. You know, 50 years ago, Ford assembly line, like the value of the car was the, the steel, was the rubber, was the tires. Today, it's it's become software. So you, you kind of said that nonchalantly, but it is, it, it's very new. Well, thanks for that comment. I would challenge you on this, actually. I think the value of the Ford is not the car. The value of the Ford is his container innovation, uh, conveyor belt innovation, his financial innovation by insisting that what intellectual property the, the company produces will be affordable, yes, as a heap of metal to an average middle-class buyer. So those are the innovations that made the car the icon of, of industry. And it was a big shift from producing every single car by hand, which would have invalidated his main achievement, which is making the car affordable for the middle class. That's such a, that's an interesting framing that you do there. Okay. So let's, let's go back to data moats and talking about those. So I'm not sure if we hit this, maybe we'll be uh, repeating this, but what exactly is a data moat? A data moat is a data that is self-enhancing by virtue of interacting with the outside world. So your brain is a data moat. My brain is a data moat. It took uh, some time to program it. It took a number of years before it started functioning and producing value for the entity, which is ourselves. Humans are, are the longest gestation entities in the world because we need to teach every single brain in our society so much. But by, in parallel, it took so many years for Google to build that brain that is now controlling half of the, the population in, in the world in some way. How did Google create their data moat? What's the history there? The history is systematically, systematically removing people from the data flows and automating the ins and outs of, of the data flows. So, and, and that goes back to the idea of compounding. You don't want to work for money, essentially. You want somebody else to work for your money. And so every time you remove a human worker from a process that produces value for, for outside entities, you essentially are improving the compounding situation because you're removing somebody who's selling his or her time to the entity 
in order for the entity to produce results for the outside world. And so Google did this by creating more and more automation in the way it was connecting the input streams to output streams. In fact, it created a lot more innovation in the way the inflows of money were collected to outflows of money. That's that's when AdWords became a thing. That's really the, the, the I would say the biggest innovation of Google is to create the, the money machine that doesn't require any human touch. So as long as the AdWords admin interface became easy enough for, for an average marketing person to use directly, create a campaign, push the button and say go, it created the money distribution machine that worked in and of itself automatically. Obviously it was interacting with clicks on the ads, but the machine itself took money from advertisers and sent them to web pages with zero human intervention. And that's how the velocity of learning of Google Brain became so fast that uh, Microsoft, having spent $100 billion on Bing, is still far, far behind. So Google's a, a data company, really. And, and data companies and companies built on data have been around for a long time. It's not like their business models have changed all that much. Why, why Google? What, what is it about? Is it the time that we're in? Is it the technology that's available What's changed that let Google make this, that, that's enabled them to create a data moat versus data companies of the past? I would say it's the velocity of decision-making. So, so Google makes probably a billion decisions every second, and uh, it does it with no human intervention whatsoever and does it very, very cheaply relative to the amount of money it's processing through this machine. And I think that's the, really the, the answer. The, the velocity of accumulation of data, or in the Google's case, or in the human's case, it's really knowledge, know-how, the ability to orient, orient itself in the world, or in, in Google's case, in the environment, is always bound by the ability of, of the organism to, to do things just only so fast. But in Google's case, the, there is no upper bound on the ability of, of, um, of Google machinery to process bits. Maybe there is a theoretical limit, but we're very, very far from it. And so the the first company who reaches the the higher speed of accumulating knowledge, the know-how, the things that make decisions for every single click that um, everybody does on Google is the source of the advantage. Essentially, as soon as you start getting smarter, slightly faster than everybody else, you've won and you've probably won forever. And I suspect this is now happening with GPT-3. So speed can definitely be an advantage. Adding users can also be an advantage. So how does getting data from one user help a company like Google improve their product for the same user or for other users down the line? It does it by teaching the brain something new. And once you taught the brain something new, everybody else in the world takes advantage of of the slightly enhanced intelligence. And because it happens a billion times every day, this the intelligence of this brain grows disproportionately to the number of people joining the service. And does that turn into compounding effects or is that kind of a linear thing, slight improvements one by one? Well, absolutely, it's a compounding effect. Um, Think about learning to play piano. In order to practice, you need to read notes. As soon as you read notes, you start practicing. As soon as you start practicing, your technique goes up and you start reading more complex notes. Now you can read uh, more, you can play more complex pieces Therefore, your technique improves. Therefore, you can place harder pieces, and therefore, your technique improves further. And then the enjoyment of people who 
listen to you will start becoming an interesting thing. Like if you're not an amateur anymore, start becoming professional. And so the same thing happens in Google and Facebook, unfortunately, as well. Every action of every person who ever inter interacts with those services makes it smarter in some way. Just like when a baby is growing up, every image, every movement, every coordination, or every attempted step forward teaches the young brain to, to be better. And then it benefits the organism for the next 50 years or 100 years or however many years. All right. Next, let's talk about proprietary data. Uh, proprietary data can't be purchased from other sources, easily copied or reverse engineered. Can proprietary data create a defensible moat? Only if it's created organically, in my opinion. It's almost as it's almost as like asking if you know something and if I don't know it, if you were able to transfer your knowledge to me, to my brain, somehow automatically, then the argument against uh, the proprietary data being a moat would, would not stand, right? But because the transfer of, of data or, or knowledge in that particular sense is very hard, let's, let's use another example. Let's say Microsoft approached Google and said, we're going to pay you a trillion dollars for whatever you learned over the 10, 10, last 10 years that creates such a disproportional advantage for you as a company. Maybe Google will even say yes, but the context of operating with this data is so different inside Microsoft that this trillion dollars would have been wasted. It's almost like me trying to get smarter by eating other people's brains. Interesting. Okay, two more questions here. Is there any difference in data moats for ver for vertical and horizontal companies? Oh, that's a difficult question, but very interesting one. Well, vertical companies would probably tend to be more in a standards realm, just by virtue of doing one thing and doing one thing very, very well. And even if it's not formal standard, it becomes the de facto standard. Horizontal companies have a much better opportunity to attract stakeholders, users, customers, by virtue of many different services. I think this is what uh, Lou Gerstner realized when he took over IBM in what it was, 93, when IBM said, okay, we have so many different things. We're so horizontal that it's becoming a difficult proposition. Let's split the company into a bunch of baby blues. And Gerstner is like, no, 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 we're not going to do that because we're going to lose our horizontality advantage. We won't be able to come to a customer and say, we have this, 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 and that, and that. We're going to help you in so many different ways. And so the opportunity to learn from different kinds of constituencies, to different kinds of stakeholders is a huge advantage. And so in horizontal companies, I think data will become a moat if, if they're not stupid. But vertical companies will have very difficult times to, to create a moat because by being vertical, they've already declared of doing one thing and doing it very well. Awesome. So, you know, after going through that, do you have any final thoughts about building durable moats based on data-enabled network effects? It's, it seems like the progression of technology makes it look more and more like a living organism. That's why I made the analogy with the human body and the human brain before. It seems like in modern software development, there are two kinds of things. There is a big decisioning engine in the middle of the backend. And there are basically data pipes that's feeding in data and, and taking the data out. And so I suspect that all su successful entities, whether they produce software or services or physical objects, will sooner or later will, um, get into that category. There will be 
some massive learner decision maker in the middle of the company. Because again, remember, if we ask people to do whatever it is that the company does to produce its IP, it's never going to reach that data uh, compiling effect because it's going to be too slow. And somebody else will ask software to do this and, and, and their speed of learning will increase. And therefore, companies who can do it as fast won't be, won't be able to catch up. And so I think all companies in the end that are successful will rely on data modes, meaning knowledge, meaning know-how, meaning that their IP is directly derivable for what they what, from what they've learned from their stakeholders over the previous years. All right, well said. All right, Gene. Well, thanks for joining us. Before we get out of here, what's the best way if our listeners want to learn more about you or reach you? Uh, how do they do that? Uh, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, the best way probably LinkedIn. I think I published my contact information in so many places that shouldn't be a problem. Fair enough. All right, we're going to end this there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating. Thanks, Gene, for joining the show today. I really appreciate your time and our thoughtful conversation. Thanks for having me.